Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. This week, is there room for Republican compromise on a state income tax? We'll get the latest on a new proposal. Plus, the president is struggling to get support both from the Congress and the American people. Now, that doesn't bode well for 2022, let alone 2024, and some Republicans are already salivating. We'll have a look ahead to the next presidential cycle. Plus, gun control is a hot topic for legislative Democrats and a bit of a legislative roundup with some of the odd bills that lawmakers have been considering. But first, as we dive deeper into this legislative session of 2022, it looks like Democrats are kind of doing a bit of an about-face, at least when it comes to that long-term care tax. Joining me now is Fox 13 News reporter Matt Markovich, who has been covering this. And uh, So what exactly is going on? It, it seems like uh, they're taking a step back on what they tried to do last year. Well, the many politicians down in Olympia, both Republicans and Democrats, said Fixing the long-term care uh, insurance tax or Washington Cares Act, if you want to go by the official title, fixing that because there have been so many complaints was a top priority. Well, if you put everything in a nutshell, they didn't fix anything. They just kicked the can down the road and basically passed by 91 to 6 in the House a delay of 18 months before it's implemented officially. Now, you may recall that the governor last month, because of the complaints, and so many people are opting out of the tax, uh, put a hold on that to allow the legislature to take action against this. So what happened is that you had the House of Representatives, which is where this original bill, where the bill originated back in 2019, they took a shot at maybe let's try and fix it. And the Democrats, again, are in power in both the House and the Senate. Well, the Democrats basically put forward a bill that said, let's delay this 18 months. The Republicans had put together several bills saying, let's just repeal it and start from scratch again. You know, don't even use this framework that's all set up. But clearly the Democrats just said, you know, we just want to put an 18-month delay on it. They say they just want to be able to fix things uh, in that time period, and we'll revisit it in 18 months. So, Well, the whole... Well, I was going to say, before we dive too much into that, what exactly would this tax have done? What would it have paid for? So what this would have paid for is... $36,000 toward nursing care home or a long-term nursing care facility should you need it at a time in your life. You know, basically people need these facilities when they're in the 60s and the 70s and the maximum benefit was $36,000. But this was a mandatory tax that anybody in the state of Washington had to pay 38 cents per every $100 earned for 10 years. And after 10 years, you don't have to pay it. You basically paid it in a fund. And then when you need this benefit, that you would get a maximum of $36,000. Let's say it's, you know, if you're a 30-year-old, it could be in 30 years from now. Well, $36,000 could maybe buy you a bedpan. It's not going to go that far. And that was a big complaint about it. Higher incomes would actually be paying more into the lower income. So there was an equity there. There were just a lot of problems with this from the get-go. And then once it was going to be implemented January 1st, um, the governor and everybody else decided there's too many problems. I'm going to put a halt on it. But still, many companies and every state agency was taking this money out of people's paychecks starting January 1st. So there's a lot of money out there. And according to what I'm being told about this delay bill, anybody who had money taken out of their paycheck to pay for this mandatory tax will get that money refunded. 
So what are some of the proposals to fix this? We obviously have seen this delay of a year and a half, 18 months. What What is the fix? What's the plan to, well, to make that, it right? That's just it. There are no fixes. There, they, they basically, the Democrats passed uh, legislation where they could add some more exemptions, you know, more people to opt out, such as uh, people who live, who, are live in this, you know, their home is in the state, but they work out of state or military who's out of the country or out of state. They pass certain exemptions, more exemptions. And that's been the big rub about this. The Republicans are saying, you know, if you're having all these exemptions or allowing people to opt out, the, if you look at the actual arrow reports, this fund that would pay out this benefit is already insolvent from the get go because the, according to the Republicans, the state had uh, projected 105,000 people would opt out of this program and it could still go forward. Well, in reality, in the first couple of months or the, where people could opt out, 450,000 people have opted out and showed and went out and got some uh, private insurance. And here's the rub on this, Jeff, is that so many people started opting out. The private insurers in the state stopped writing the very same policy because they had 20 and 30 year olds coming to them with the intention of getting a policy for a year, then canceling. They're only getting a policy to show the state that they want to opt out of this mandatory tax. So all the insurers, it threw up all their tables. And according to one insurance broker we interviewed, um, he said that the state, the private insurers have stopped writing long-term care policies in this state because of this huge mess up with the long-term care tax. So how did this all start? I mean, you mentioned this this passed in 2019. I mean, who is the, the prime author of this bill that's got to be taking some heat? Well, I mean, it's you can basically say it's the Republic, excuse me, the Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate that pushed this through and the governor being a Democrat signed it. And that's where it started. I mean, the idea is that people weren't saving money for long-term health care or even long-term nursing care. And this is focuses on the long-term nursing care aspect, not so much the doctor visits. It's the facility to take care of you while you, uh, you know, in your later years. And that uh, there wasn't any, people weren't saving for that because that could bankrupt some family, you know, just going to a nursing home for just for a couple of years. People don't have that kind of money if they don't have insurance. So that was the intention of this, of this, of uh, this tax. So, as one Republican said, uh, Drew Stokesbury, he said, you know, good intentions don't make great policy. And I think that's kind of sums this up. Both sides think it's a good idea to have people save for long-term retirement and long-term health care and long-term nursing care issues. But how this was set up and how to do it with this mandatory paycheck uh, tax, payroll check tax, it just wasn't done. It just had a lot of holes in it. And now we're feeling those holes. And now they just put this whole thing on hold. But don't we already have something like this at the federal level called Medicare? That's a good point. Uh, I can't tell you whether or not how much Medicare will pay for nursing home facilities. I'm not up to speed on that. But that's a good point. Uh, but the state, I guess the state lawmakers felt that there needed to be some backup to Medicare. And that's why they had this payroll tax. So where do things stand now and what happens next? So what happens next is that we wait for 18 months or the idea was and the Democrats and some of the Democrats alluded to that they could work on a fix or talk about fixes during this legislative session. But we're in a short session, Jeff, and you know that it's only 60 days. They're not going to talk about something to fix something 18 months from now. They're going to spend their time kind of on other priorities that are more immediate. 
um, like the transportation budget, which is a big deal for them. Um, so right now we're going to be in a holding pattern and the majority party, the Democrats, are supposed to be starting to think about fixes for the next 18 months. And so when this comes up again in July of 2023, who knows what the tax will be there. And they, you know, if, if they can't come up with a fix, they may even repeal it. All right, Fox 13 political reporter Matt Markovich, stay with us. we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, it looks like there may be room for compromise on a state income tax when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela and joined once again by Fox 13 News reporter Matt Markovich. We're talking about the legislative session and, well, an income tax. It's back once again. Of course, where would we be in Washington State if we weren't debating the possibility of an income tax whenever there's a legislative session? But now there seems like there's a bit of movement, maybe a possibility for compromise. What's going on, Matt? Well, what you have is cities who've been wanting to pass a citywide income tax. Uh, as you know, or I should just restate it, that the Constitution in the state prohibits an income tax, a personal income tax. It's That's been challenged many times. The Supreme Court has ruled on it and always defers back to the Constitution, which says the state of Washington, there shall be no personal income tax. Um, so cities, though, especially Seattle, want to enact a citywide personal income tax because they, they, they just want more money to pay for the services like homelessness and things like that. So they've been threatening to pass their own legislation, knowing that it'll end up in the courts and maybe eventually go to the Washington Supreme Court. Well, now there's a little window here. Uh, State Senator Bob Hasegawa, who's from Seattle, just put in a bill that basically says cities can go ahead with a citywide income tax but with this huge caveat. They have to offset it with any other city tax that they've imposed, like a city sales tax or a utility tax or city property tax. If they reduce what Bob Hasegawa calls regressive taxes and, and uh, uh, to offset, they can reduce those taxes first. And if you do that, then you, the city like Seattle, you will be allowed to go and try and have a personal citywide income tax. Now, the huge debate is, is that constitutional? Some say it is, some say it isn't. Uh, the proponents say, like Bob Hasegawa say, we already have an income tax in the state of Washington. It's called the business and opportunity tax, BNO tax, which is basically a tax on business income. Uh, so that is an income tax on businesses. So we already have that. And cities implement that all the time. It's not a state tax. It is a city tax. Uh, so we already have a precedent for it. He's basically creating the, the legal or legislative door opening for cities to go ahead and pass a city-imposed income tax. And you can't even have something like that unless the legislature gives it a, an okay. Regardless of the constitutionality of this, the, the legislature has to give the authority to have an income tax to cities. And that's what Bob Hasegawa's bill would do. Has there been any response from Republicans? Because Republicans have been dead set against a state income tax. Uh, obviously, their argument is that it's unconstitutional according to the state constitution. But having to balance it out by cutting other taxes, in effect, making the tax code more progressive in a city, is that something that they're open to? Well, here's a weird answer for you, Jeff. 
at the hearing that happened on Thursday morning at 8 a.m., no city, no Republicans, nobody who is of, of, I would say, of any legislative authority or even a lobbyist for the city even testified yay or nay on this. Nobody. Which was totally a shock to me. Not even the city of Seattle. I called the city Seattle uh, city council. They were the the PR people were researching. They hadn't heard about this bill. I called the South Sound representative of the South Sound cities. They didn't really heard about this bill. Here's a bill that would basically open the door partially, not fully, but partially to a citywide income tax for any city who wanted to do it. And cities weren't there at the hearing to lobby for it. I was really surprised. So I don't know what the Republicans think about this on the record. And I don't even know what the city of Seattle has. We reached out to the mayor's office. We've reached out to the city council to get a response about this bill. And we haven't heard anything back. What did Bob Hasegawa, the sponsor of this, have to say? Because you'd think he'd want to bring in the city that would support it. You would think that, but there wasn't. I, I it's, it's perplexing to me. I asked for an interview with Bob Hasegawa uh, today. And his staff said he wasn't available. I think he's surprised that there wasn't anything like uh, people testifying on behalf of the bill. I mean, he had, there were 192 people who signed up and said they didn't testify, but they signed up that they were against it. There was nobody signing up for it. And only three people testified actually at the hearing and they're all against it. So where does the bill go for now? I assume this was, I mean, we're only in the second week of the legislative session. So this was probably the, the bill's just first hearing. Yeah, it was its first hearing. But given the topic, as you talked about, it's such a hotly debated topic, income tax in the state. Whenever that people mention income tax, you know, it gets people's, you know, hair on the back of their neck goes up, either for it or against it. It's one of those topics that is a hot button issue. And here is real legislation that could really open up a door for cities to do this. And it's just like, it didn't even happen. It was like, I'm totally surprised that there wasn't any notoriety about this. Did they go under the radar? I'm really perplexed about this, Jeff. Well, we'll have to see what happens next week when the Republican and Democratic caucuses hold their weekly press conferences. We'll have to ask about them then. Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News reporter, thank you so much for your time and insight. Always, Jeff. When we come back, President Biden's approval rating is tanking, and that does not bode well for Democrats in this year's midterms. When the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, President Biden's honeymoon is over, if he even had one. He's about one year into his presidency, one year this week, and he has had a number of accomplishments, but a number of failures, and as a result, his approval rating is in the low 40s, roughly 42% of Americans currently approving of his job performance. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and these are not the numbers you want heading into the midterm elections. No, Jeff. And what's interesting is that the number is even lower if you look at this Quinnipiac poll, which is usually fairly reliable. Uh, last Wednesday, they came out uh, with the latest evidence. They said 33% of Americans approve, uh, 53% disapprove. Now, the White House came back and fired back and said, well, you know, you got to look at all the people who said they don't really know how they feel about him. And if you add those in, the numbers are higher. Uh, and so they're arguing for 43 percent, which is the Gallup poll. But even that, you know, when the White House is saying, yeah, he's at 40, 43, let's get excited. That is not something to get excited about. 
if you are running the press office in the White House and certainly not in an election year, not for Joe Biden. He's not up for reelection, but Democrats are in the House and Senate and they hold very slim majorities. And when a president's popularity is this low, it tends to mean a complete reversal of fortune in the House and Senate, which means that they could lose their majorities in both. Have we seen anything like this before in previous presidents having this low of approval rating? So uh, yeah, on? only only one, uh, and that's Donald Trump. Now, if you believe the Quinnipiac poll, Joe Biden is at a lower number than Donald Trump. Donald Trump was at thirty seven percent. Quinnipiac is thirty three. And, and again, the probably when you put all the polls together, it, it, it's what you mentioned at the beginning, somewhere around forty two, forty three percent of the country approving, but that's still underwater. That's less than 50% for a president that won with the highest percentage of votes in American voting history and and almost 7 million more votes than uh, Donald Trump did. That's an extraordinary margin to have lost that much support in a year uh, means there's something going wrong here. And, And there are a number of things that are going against the president that he has little or no control over. Let's take inflation, number one. Inflation is driven by supply and demand. There is precious little supply in many goods and services, and there is a high demand, in large part because of what Joe Biden did in terms of pumping money into the economy and getting these uh, COVID relief bills passed where people were making extra money for uh, child care credits, for uh, being unemployed. Uh, People had a lot more money in their pockets to spend, and they are spending it and did spend it. The problem is the supply chain problems, the continued uh, problems with COVID, with people getting sick, with this kind of domino effect where uh, goods and services are piling up on the docks in California. Uh, People can't get things out. People can't get enough workers to go into factories. All of that doesn't necessarily mean it's Joe Biden's fault. It's just an end result of putting the economy in the deep freeze for uh, almost two years. And he's suffering the consequences because the bottom line is people tend to blame the president, whether the economy is good or bad. And if you take a look at 538.com, where they track the president's approval rating over the course of his term, and you saw things tend to shift right around August of last year. That's when his uh, president Biden's approval rating went from net positive to net negative. Happening around that time, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That and the Delta variant coming back in, roaring back in, and and basically taking what was a very optimistic outlook where people were getting vaccinated last spring and into the summer. The president declared Independence Day would be Independence Day from COVID. Turns out to be not the case. Uh, And when you say one thing and something else happens, even again, that you have no control over a variant coming in and doing these things. Uh, that tends to weigh negatively on on your popularity. So uh, people are, are blaming the president, saying, well, you said it was over, and it's not, as if the president can make, uh, wave a magic wand and get people vaccinated when they don't want to be vaccinated. And that's another problem. He's trying to do that. He tried to do it with a vaccine mandate that the Supreme Court basically cut him off at the knees with, saying, no, we're going to put a stay on that and let it go through the courts. So that is a a problem for the president and a number of other things that he's tried to get through this build back better agenda uh, killed by two members of his own party, uh, as well as the voting rights bill killed by two members of his own party who refused to 
kill the filibuster in order to get that to pass. So what are we expecting over the next couple of weeks and months? Is this trend going to continue, do you think? Well, that that's a tough question. It, I, you don't know how someone regroups. The template you can look toward is Bill Clinton. When he was president, uh, he lost the midterms by a lot uh, and ended up becoming a president who had to deal with Republican majorities in both the House and Senate. He basically uh, tacked to the center and managed to get things passed. Uh, and even to the point where he was able to uh, erase most of the uh, budget deficit for his term. And that was extraordinary that he was able to do that. But he did it by basically becoming much more conservative. Will Joe Biden do the same thing? It's unlikely, but we'll have to wait and see. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, what will the Republican ticket look like in 2024? Will it be Trump or DeSantis or Trump-DeSantis? We'll get the latest on a split forming within the GOP and the possibility of mending fences when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, in about 10 months or so, voters are going to be going to the polls for the 2022 midterms. And if you think that's the election we're talking about, think again. We're looking even further ahead to 2024. It's never too early to start talking about the next presidential election. And on the Republican side... There seems to be a lot of jockeying for position. The two front runners, former President Donald Trump, may be running once again. And then, of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But there seems to be a rift forming between the two of those. Joining me now is Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Washington Post. And uh, DeSantis, for the last several years, has been one of Mr. Trump's most loyal supporters. So what's going on? Well, I think it really boils down to what we've seen over and over again, which is that when the people around Trump Trump, when their stars start to shine a little bit, maybe too brightly for him, when they look like they're, um, you know, maybe looking like contenders for, for leading the Republican Party moving forward, he does have a tendency to try and knock them down a few pegs. We, we've seen that with uh, Nikki Haley, notably, when, when she was uh, in his universe. Uh, we've seen this with any number of other people. And then the other uh, aspect of it that I think is important is that um, you know, to that very same point, Donald Trump very much wants the people around him to defer to him when it comes to 2024. And the vast majority of Republicans who have been considered for that have have indeed deferred to him and said basically that they wouldn't run if he would or basically that he's the presumptive not if he doesn't run again. DeSantis has very pointedly declined to do that. And uh, the way it's been reported, including by The New York Times, by The Washington Post, is that Trump is basically trying to gain that concession from DeSantis and sending a message that if he doesn't get it, uh, there will be some tension in the meantime. And I think that's really the root of what we're seeing now start to break out a little bit more into the open. But former President Trump hasn't even said he's going to run for re-election. Yeah, and I, I think it, you know most people generally think it's likely that he will, or at least that he's planning on it right now. But I think even from... Uh, you know, in, in kind of an ego uh, standpoint or, or wanting to assure that you're still a leader for the next several years here. Um, the idea that somebody like DeSantis wouldn't even offer that kind of gesture of goodwill towards the former president, I think, would, would be enough to rub, rub the, the former president the wrong way. And so um, I think that it's, it's a combination of things. And I don't necessarily think it means Trump is set on running. But certainly it speaks to the, the tension that he often feels over 
people being loyal to him and, and standing by him for, for long periods of time. Why does former President Trump have such a command over the Republican Party? Well, a lot of it is because of stuff like this. Um, he has been very good at, at turning the base against people who don't tow his line. He's made it very costly for those who, for example, vote for impeachment or criticize him like former Senators Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, John McCain did. We saw in each of those cases, after they criticized Trump, he really turned against them. And what happened in the polls was a lot of times it wound up that Democrats actually liked those senators more than Republicans. The, the party base really turned on them when Trump made a point of kind of policing these, uh, you know, these people who spoke out against him in his midst. And then another part of it is just that the, the base is that loyal to him. Um, it, the Trump presidency and and uh, his control of the Republican Party has often owed not so much to policy specifics, but to kind of belief in the ethos of Trump. And when that's the case, and the details don't really matter as much, it becomes much more difficult for other Republicans to navigate them, uh, navigate that because uh, there's no kind of consistent playing ground for them to to try and arrest the course of the party on. And so, you know, I think DeSantis is a little bit different in that it's not necessarily a real policy dispute with the former president. In fact, he's uh, spoken out on many of the, the same kind of things. Um, but, but you know, what they have done is started to have a little bit of a policy dispute over the coronavirus response. And we'll have to see whether uh, DeSantis's attempt basically to get to Trump's right on that by arguing against the early lockdowns that Trump momentarily supported. Um, by declining to talk about his vaccination status, which Trump has attacked him for. You know, he's not coming at this from the middle. He's, he's taking out a position that's more in line with the more extreme elements of the party. I think that becomes a little bit harder for, uh, for Trump to navigate. Well, and DeSantis, as has been written, is sort of kind of Trump without the Trump. I recall during his campaign for governor, he was talking about how much he supported President Trump. He ran that ad with his uh, kid building the wall with Legos and all of that sort of stuff. Does DeSantis really feel that he has an inroad with the Republican Party with as strong of a command as we talked about that Trump already has on it? Yeah, so I think you know if there is one Republican who could be doing this right now and maybe come out of it successfully, uh, it might be DeSantis. He is the guy who runs closest to Trump in the early, very early 2024 polls um, and has actually closed the gap somewhat in recent months to the point where it's not like Trump has a complete lock on the nomination if he were to run. And also, as we were talking about, it's not like he's coming at Trump from the middle. He's coming at him from the right flank a little bit on this on these coronavirus mitigation measures and and seems to believe that that's at least something that's worth pressing and seeing if it might um, it might cause some people at least to turn on Trump a little bit or at least give the people who maybe like Trump, but think it might be good to turn the page, give them an outlet to believe that there's somebody who can actually take up that mantle and and move the ball forward. So I think that that's the play right here. It's not necessarily that he's decided he's going to go after this, you know, whole hog from here on out. Um, but as we're seeing with the last few weeks here, even toying with that possibility comes with a cost because Trump isn't just going to sit on his on his hands and, and take it from uh, from Ron DeSantis. However, gently the, the the feuding is right now you think there's a possibility of a trump desantis ticket in 2024 i wouldn't rule it out we, we've seen over and over again 
that feuding with Trump is sometimes a very temporary proposition. Uh, I'm thinking, of course, of Steve Bannon, who was cast out of the White House and, and later earned a pardon from Trump and kind of remained in his good graces, even though Trump had said some very mean things about him towards the end. Um, it, it's never permanent. Um, I, I do think that this is DeSantis messing with something that is particularly prideful for Trump. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But uh, certainly, if you're Trump, and you want to win in 2024, I think there's a lot of people who would point to DeSantis as potentially your best running mate, because he's not going to pick Mike Pence again. All right, Aaron Blake, senior political reporter with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Meanwhile, Ivanka Trump's handlers are responding to a request to voluntarily testify before the House committee investigating last year's attack on the Capitol. ABC News correspondent M. Wynn joining us from Washington, D.C. And M., the former first daughter, isn't saying yes, but not saying no either. Yeah, exactly. So in actuality, her spokesperson said in a statement that they had just learned about the request today and then just repeated a tweet from her from January 6th saying, quote, any security breach or disrespect to our law enforcement is unacceptable. The violence must stop immediately, end quote. So it was very short, very simple, and it did not say whether or not she will cooperate with the panel moving forward. And basically, they're asking for a certain number of conversations, testimony regarding conversations with her father, President Trump, before on January 6th as well, regarding the Capitol riot and then the challenging of election results, and also whether or not there were any plans from the president to impede the election. They also say they had testimony testimony from White House staff that requested who requested for her help to intervene and persuade former President Trump to address the violence. Now, the panel also says in a letter addressed to, to the daughter of the former president that one of Trump's discussions with Vice President Mike Pence happened by phone on the morning of January 6th, saying, quote, you were present in the Oval Office and observed at least one side of that telephone conversation. And if you remember at that time, that's when the former president insisted that Pence had a choice whether or not to certify the state's electoral college votes, to which, of course, we remember Pence said his hands were tied by the Constitution. He moved forward in uh, certifying the election results for Joe Biden. Now, all of this does come also after a major Supreme Court blow to the Trump team who had been working to withhold his presidential documents from the committee. Ivanka Trump first referred to the Capitol rioters as American patriots when you're talking about that tweet earlier, but then deleted that Mm -hmm. reference. And so the committee, really, they're going after the inner circle and they want to know what if she tried to persuade her dad to, to stop the lawlessness. Right, exactly. They say that they've talked to a number of staff directly from the White House. And remember, they've talked to hundreds of people and they've gathered thousands of documents and they find that some of the staff actually requested for her help to intervene and persuade the former president to address this violence. So they want to know the details about the communications she had with the former president at that time because she was with him during that time. And yeah, so far we've seen a number of requests to people in his inner circle. You know that just yesterday the panel had subpoenaed two far-right activists asking for records and testimony. You know that 
other members in his inner circle have been subpoenaed as well. We also know that just last week, the former White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, appeared before the House Select Committee virtually. And we don't know exactly what was said, but we know that they've talked to a number of people. So because this is ramping up, we might expect more public findings to be published as soon as spring. Are we hearing anything from the former president about the committee going after his eldest daughter for testimony? I was looking into that and I haven't seen anything directly from the former president. But, you know, we've heard from them in them, as in his team in the past. They say this is illegitimate. They say that this is all targeted and politically targeted towards the president. The thing is, we also have heard from the panel as well. And this could be elevated as high as criminal referral against the former president and that they are trying to figure out precisely what role the former president and his aides played, including in this case, Ivanka, in the efforts to stop the counting of the electoral college votes. ABC's M. Wynn joining us from Washington, D.C. That's Como's Elisa Jaffe. Still to come, Governor Inslee takes Republicans to task over COVID misinformation, plus gun control in the state legislature and some of the more interesting bills that were considered this week when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. We'll get to some of the more interesting bills considered by the state legislature this past week in just a moment. But first, during a congressional hearing this past week, Governor Inslee blamed Republicans for peddling COVID misinformation. The Republican Party has created an identity, unfortunately, that has bred a mistrust of science, a mistrust of governmental uh, actions in this regard, in a sense that you can't be a good Republican if you get vaccinated. But Governor Pete Ricketts of Nebraska took exception. I would disagree with uh, Governor Inslee's characterization that this is a Republican Party thing. I, I think what we have to do if we really want to get past this, we have to get past the, the partisanship. COVID has already killed more than 856,000 Americans. Now to our legislative update. Changes are coming to some of those police accountability laws passed last year. Como's John Libertini reports. House Bill 1735 clarifies the use of force, allowing first responders to again respond to crisis situations involving mental health. Representative Dan Griffey, a first responder himself, put it best. We do use force at times to save people's lives, and I'm so thankful to the good gentleman for bringing this reform up. The use of lethal force is also being modified to allow law enforcement officers to use lower caliber weapons, beanbags, and rubber bullets. Representative Jesse Johnson. It only applies to rifles and not shotguns or less lethal ammunition launchers, which is what we originally wanted. Any final changes are going to require the approval of the legislature and the governor. John Libertini, Como News. Meanwhile, state lawmakers are considering a flurry of potential new gun regulations. Let's focus on four specific bills, all of which have had their first hearings in front of lawmakers. The first, and likely the hardest to implement should it become law, would be a state ban on assault weapons. Senate Bill 5217 would outlaw 62 specific fire Firearms. Additionally, assault weapon also includes a semi-automatic centerfire or rimfire rifle that has an overall length of less than 30 inches or a conversion kit from which an assault weapon can be assembled. That Senate staffer Tim Ford briefing lawmakers on the bill during a committee hearing this past week. Representatives from the NRA and the Brady campaign to end gun violence were among the dozens that signed up to testify. Another bill lawmakers are considering would ban the manufacture of untraceable ghost guns, often constructed through at-home 3D printing. Now, 3D printing has been used in the past to subvert restrictions on assault weapons and other firearms, so lawmakers are trying to crack down. 
State lawmakers also want to prohibit the armed intimidation of election workers. So they're considering a bill that would ban the open carrying of firearms at election facilities. An exception is provided for law enforcement officers and security personnel. And a violation is punishable as a gross misdemeanor with the loss of the defendant's concealed pistol license, if any. That's legislative staffer John Brzezinski. A similar bill, SB 5568, would allow local governments to restrict the open carrying of firearms during official meetings or on city or county property. Democrat Patty Cooterer sponsored that legislation. I think that there are a lot of cities in Washington state that won't vote, vote to ban open carry, but I think that there are a lot um, in the state who will. Now, she says the bill is in response to several incidents in which armed protesters have appeared to intimidate local officials over the passage of COVID restrictions and mandates. As you can imagine, the measure has sparked a lot of controversy, with some commenters not even believing there's a problem. This is ridiculous. This armed intimidation garbage is it's just stupid. Now, it's unclear if any of these bills have enough support to become law, but the legislative session has just begun. Another thing lawmakers are considering, ranked choice voting for local elections. It's a system in which voters rank their preferred candidates on the ballot. If no one has a majority of first place votes, the candidate with the fewest is eliminated and the second place votes of those ballots are then considered. The process repeats until someone has a majority. Senate Bill 5584 would allow such elections in local races. Democrat Yasmin Trudeau sponsored the bill. Communities around the state are asking for the option to implement electoral reforms like ranked choice voting as a way to allow voters to fully express themselves at the ballot box rather than constraining them to what they see as really two choices, often what they perceive as false choices. But critics say ranked choice voting leads to voter confusion and disengagement and even voter disenfranchisement. A similar bill failed to get enough support in the legislative session last year. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.